Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Richard T. Griscom. Richard T. Griscom is a postdoctoral researcher at Leiden University. He obtained his bachelor's and PhD degrees from the University of Oregon. Richard's research focuses on language documentation, fieldwork methodology, and functional typological linguistic description and theory, with a special emphasis on languages of East Africa. Over the past five years, he has been working with the Asimjeg de Toga and the Hadzabe, both endangered minority language communities of northern Tanzania. He is a recipient of two grants from the Endangered Languages Documentation Program and is a depositor of the Endangered Languages Archive. In today's episode, Richard and I talked about how researchers can utilize mobile technology to make recordings and do analysis over great distances in communities that maybe don't have much electricity. Another thing we discuss is how digitizing fieldwork workflows can increase efficiency and accuracy in the field, as well as what community collaboration has looked like for Richard's projects. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for coming on to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So to start, can you take us through your fieldwork biography? So where you've done fieldwork? Yeah, so most of my fieldwork has been in northern Tanzania. Uh, Tanzania is located in East Africa. So I've been primarily working with the Asimjeg de Toga for the past four years. And that's through projects funded by the Endangered Languages Documentation Program, and then also the Firebird Foundation for Anthropological Research. And then to a lesser extent, I've also worked with Hadza speakers who also live in the same region of Tanzania. And then I've also worked briefly with the last speakers of a non-classified language known by some as Omayo, um, also in the same region of Tanzania. And I'm now starting a a two-year documentation project with the Hadza funded by ELDP. Briefly, can you go into a bit of what you mean by unclassified, like unrecognized or? Well, there's uh, so little information on the language and there's so few proficient speakers left that it's it's not exactly clear which family uh, the, the language would be classified as belonging to. There is evidence of contact with some some other neighboring groups, but the 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 lexicon and a small bit of what appears to be morphology that we have documentation of doesn't really correspond to any of the families in the region. So um, as of now, we've kind of left it as unclassified. It could be an isolate perhaps, but we don't really have enough information to say. Oh, that's really interesting. So can you briefly describe the languages you research in more detail? Yeah, so um, Asimjeg, or it's also known as Isimjega, it's a variety of Datoga. And Datoga is considered by some to be a dialect cluster, and it's considered by some others to be a a group of closely related languages. Uh, But either way you view it, they are language varieties that are members of the Southern Nilotic subfamily, which is one of three primary branches of the Nilotic family, which consists of a number of languages spoken throughout East Africa. And the number of Asimjig de Toga speakers is estimated to be no more than 3,000, and all of them reside in northern Tanzania. And then uh, Hadza is a language isolate. It is spoken by around 1,000 people around Lake Ayasi in northern Tanzania. 
and they are traditionally a foraging society. So a, a few hundred members of the community continue to practice a nomadic hunting and gather lifestyle in the bush, uh, while others have, have started to adopt a more sedentary lifestyle on the periphery of the bush. In villages, they're typically occupied by members of other ethnic groups, such as the Datoga, but also the Yurok or the Hanzu or Sukuma. And can you talk a little bit about your main research interests? Yeah, so um, generally I'm interested in language documentation uh, and then also more specifically fieldwork methodology, also functional typological approaches to linguistic description, especially with a focus on morphosyntax, uh, and more recently language contact and uh, variation. And going back to Datoga, because that's the language you've worked with most extensively at this point, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about the sociolinguistic context? What is there language shift happening? What is the you said there's only 3000 speakers left, so are they all elderly? What's the situation? Right. Well, speaking generally about the Datoga, they're relatively new to Tanzania. So they arrived in Tanzania about 2 or 300 years ago to the region just north of what is now the Serengeti National Park. And only within the past 100 years they have now spread throughout different regions of the country. So they, they're relatively new to the, reg the regions in which they now live. And for that reason, they're kind of set apart from uh, many of the, the Bantu agriculturalist communities of Tanzania that have resided in those regions for the past 2,000 years or so. Uh, now, due to a number of pressures, many of the Datoga have now adopted uh, mostly sedentary agro-pastoralist lifestyles, so they're now practicing some uh, agriculture. But they're typically seen as uh, being somewhat distinct from the, the Bantu ethnic groups of Tanzania. And for that reason, they are typically uh, a marginalized community within Tanzania, uh, especially those that continue to practice traditional lifestyles. And then among the Datoga, the Asamjeg are additionally marginalized. Um, so they are described by some as a, uh, as a slave group of sorts. So they were subservient to s some of the, the larger Datoga ethnic groups, or uh, Datoga subtribes. And for that reason, uh, there are a number of Datoga who could not intermarry with the Asamjeg. Uh, they would not reside together with the Asamjeg, so they were uh, largely a marginalized group even among the Datoga. So their existence uh, outside of areas where Datoga reside is essentially unknown. So even among a marginalized kind of macro group, they're even more marginalized. And uh, because of that, there's a lot of language shift that's occurring. It varies from community to community. So in the most remote community that I visited, Asamjig de Togo was, uh, continued to be used by children. In most of the more urban communities that I visited, uh, it was used by elders. There were some children uh, who were continuing to, to use the language, but uh, only in certain neighborhoods. It's actually quite interesting that uh, the, the village that I lived in the most, those were in the center of town where there were there was contact with other ethnic groups, the children would be speaking Swahili. But those on the edge of town, more near the bush, uh, where there's less contact with these other ethnic groups, the children would be speaking Asamjig. Uh, so it really varies quite a bit, but in some areas there is significant language shift, especially north of the Serengeti 
And I would say quite confidently that the the language is in danger. Yeah. Is there any relation to Gorwa, the language that Andrew Harvey works with, who we had on the show earlier? So there there are connections to to Gorwa in Iraq uh, through contact, uh, but they're they're not related uh, genetically, so to speak. So um, so Asamjigdatoga is a Nilotic language, whereas uh, Gorwa is a Cushitic language. But having said that. Historically, these language groups have co-resided in the same region for many years, and there are what have been described as aerial features that all of these languages share, even though they come from totally different families or different phyla even. And there was a book chapter specifically on this topic in a book called The Linguistic Geography of Africa. And this chapter was uh, written by uh, Derek Nurse and Martin Mouse and Roland Kiesling, and it's about what they described as the Tanzania Rift Valley area. And in this area, a number of uh, genetically distinct languages all shared similar features. Uh, and so that's something that Andrew and I have been looking at as we've been doing these kind of larger documentation projects uh, with these language communities that speak languages that aren't related, but then happen to have these similar features. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Can we talk a bit about how you've utilized mobile technology to make recordings and conduct analysis over great distances with minimal electricity? Yeah, so mobile technologies and also mobile money systems, uh, they've created some new ways for field workers to engage remote speech communities. So now you can do uh, many aspects of field work while you're not even in the field. And there are a number of prerequisites for, for doing this kind of work. So one key is that you, you really need to build strong relationships with the community members that you plan to work with remotely. Uh, you also need to maintain regular contact with those community members. And uh, you need to provide some specialized training for this remote work. So developing these strong relationships, those are important for maintaining good contacts, good to share information about your life when you're not in the field, to give people an idea of what kind of issues you might run into while you're working remotely. So if you have a tight schedule when you're at university, uh, which you might not have when you're in the field, then you can tell people about that so they know in advance that when you say you need to meet at a specific time or you'd like to get something by a certain time, that then they understand why. Also, any issues with uh, budget concerns, for example, then you kind of be upfront about those uh, so that uh, the expectations are clear uh, while you're in the field so there's not a misunderstanding when then you return home and, and then try to engage in this kind of work. It's also important just to, to continue regular contact with community members that you're working with. So this will keep you aware of any issues that they are facing. And it also demonstrates to them that you, you value your relationship with them and give some sort of uh, continuity to these kind of uh, longer term projects that involve time both in the field and out of the field. Uh, also, uh, in terms of specialized training, uh, you'll have to offer some training that is separate from any training or in addition to any training that, that you offer for doing work in the field because some of the tasks involved in remote field work are a little bit different from those that, um, that you do while you're in the field. So you can try to, for example, recreate the context of being out of the field by working from a different town. So you could then 
uh, for example, do, do like a Skype call or WhatsApp call uh, from a different town and kind of pretend that you're out of the country and try and do some of this remote work and then just uh, see what works and what didn't work and then get back together and, and kind of review what happened. But there are a number of tasks that you can do remotely. So you can uh, monitor the progress of community data collection. So if you train community members to do their own data collection or if they're doing their data collection on their own to begin with, um, you can check in with them about what data they've collected. Uh, you might even be able to get data directly from community members. You can conduct a licitation directly over voice, uh, voice over IP. Um, or indirectly uh, by providing community members with data to be recorded. So, of course, that requires some specialized training. Voice over IP, it really depends on the connection that you have, uh, if it's a good connection. So that's like a Skype call or WhatsApp call. So if you have a good connection and you can get a good recording out of it, then it might be worth your while. Generally, though, I found if you want a nice recording, it's best to... to to provide them with the data, so like in a spreadsheet or a text file of some kind, and then give them specialized training. So say, if I if I give you this list of words, like say if you just want you know a list of nouns, uh, and say I want these nouns in singular and plural, and you kind of train them on how you're going to notate that, then they can read that list and then uh, translate that to their own native tongue and then kind of do a, a self-elicitation of sorts. Or they can also elicit that from another speaker. So uh, you can kind of coordinate these sorts of activities uh, remotely, and then you can uh, actually get elicited data while you're not in the field, which can be very useful. You can also prepare natural speech data to be transcribed or translated by community members depending on your workflow. So previously, I've trained community members to use mobile phones to do transcriptions and translations. And uh, in order to, to effectively use that workflow, I had to prepare some files and then uh, post them on a Dropbox, and then community members would download them, and then they would do the transcriptions and translations, and then re-upload them, and they would be communicating over WhatsApp to kind of coordinate all of this stuff. And then once you have those initial transcriptions and translations, you can also uh, check in with them to revise the work that you've done. So are they doing the translations and the transcriptions on the phones, or are they using... Are they are they using Elon or how is it working for that in that way? Yeah, so you can do it either way. Um, and in my experience, doing transcriptions and translations on the phone is possible, and in some contexts, is maybe the only way it can be done. So if you're working with a very remote community that has no electricity, then it, using a computer might not really be practical. Uh, unless you kind of uh, you set up like a solar system of some kind. Now, having said that, it's it's not really ideal. It takes a lot of extra work. So, with that sort of workflow, you have to kind of prepare files. So you have to say take uh, a, a text that you've recorded, and you have to segment the audio. Then you have to export each segment of audio as a separate file, and then probably convert those to MP3. And then you have to put those in a compressed folder, like a zip file, and then uh, send that to the community members. Then they download that, then they extract it, then they create a spreadsheet, and then 
what is kind of cool about it is they can then uh, enter the transcriptions and translations directly into the spreadsheet, and each row of the spreadsheet corresponds to each segment of the audio. Uh, so then when they upload that spreadsheet, then you can take that data and with some kind of data wrangling, put that into a file in Elon so that uh, the, the transcriptions and translations from the spreadsheet then go into different tiers in, in the Elon file. So it's kind of cool how you can do that, but it's definitely it's a process that relies on the field worker doing a lot of manual processing of the data. Uh, what is more ideal is to train community members to use laptops with Elon if you're, if you're using Elon for your workflow. And that way they can just enter the transcriptions and translations directly and you don't have to do all this data wrangling. That saves you a lot of time. So that is one issue that, uh, that I ran into in the past is uh, it became a, it, it took a lot of time for me to process this data, to use that particular method so that community members in very remote communities could continue to work on transcriptions and translations. It definitely is possible, but it's challenging. So you have to devote a lot of time to that sort of thing when you might be you know, busy uh, teaching or taking courses and doing uh, other research. So, so even if the even in the most remote scenario with the most remote communities, they can. There's always the option to use the phones, though, to translate and transcribe. Yes. So as long as they have intermittent access to mobile data, so not necessarily even where they live, but in a town nearby, they can be working on a smartphone, entering in transcriptions and translations, or doing other kinds of things, and then when they go to town, then they can. Uh, they can upload that data. And especially if they're only uploading text data, then it's really quite easy. If they're creating recordings, then you definitely need at least like a, a 3G connection. Nowadays in Tanzania, there's 3G all over the place. So it's actually quite easy. But video, I think we're not quite at that point yet where we can easily upload video in uh, these sorts of remote communities. But there is a lot of work you can do if you plan ahead and and you you provide the proper training. And, and another aspect of this, uh, at least in East Africa, is that there are now mobile money systems. It's called uh, M-Pesa is how it's uh, generally referred to in uh, East Africa. So that means that uh, with services such as World Remit, which is a website online that I've been using, you can send funds directly from your account to uh, members of a speech community, even those who are living in areas with no mobile data, with no electricity, they can get funds directly from you. And usually the services cost like a few dollars each time that you use them. So I was sending perhaps like a hundred dollars and it would cost between two to four dollars to send that money. Then usually you need to keep a work log. So you're tracking how much each person is working. And then once uh, they've worked a certain amount, uh, then you can send the funds and then it will go to them directly and then they can uh, take cash out even in the village. So that enables this kind of remote work as well. And then of course, if you if you are able to set up a bank account uh, in the country where the, the community is, then you could also do that remotely uh, so you can do bank transfers and things like that. Yeah, that's cool. 
it's something that's totally new to us. You know, this was not possible at all even 10 years ago. So uh, we're kind of just discovering it and we're just trying to figure out what the possibilities are, what works, what doesn't work, what's easy, what's hard. And I, I kind of find that fascinating. And I, I, I feel that we have a lot to gain from, from trying out these new technologies uh, because we can continue to do a lot of this work and maintain these connections that we have with communities when we're not in the field. And I think that we, we can improve our connections with speech communities a lot through these new technologies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can we discuss how we can assess what technological tools are most useful for communities and appropriate for different fieldwork contexts? Yeah, so there's a lot to consider when you're uh, assessing the technologies that you're using. I would say that generally it's a good idea to try to assess the technology that you're using every time that you plan to use it when you go to the field. Well, every time you're going to the field, you should be assessing which technologies are you taking with you, what are you planning to use, and there are a lot of factors to consider when you're making those assessments. So you want to be thinking about whether or not the technology will still be available for the entire duration of the project. So if you start with a certain kind of technology and then a year later or two years later it's not around anymore, then that could be problematic. You also want to use reliable technology. So you want something that's uh, robust, something that will last even in, in uh, remote field conditions. Uh, it's nice to have redundant technology. So if you have a technology that has some advantages, that could be good. But if it fails, you need to have a, a backup. So like uh, just thinking of a, a laptop computer, if your laptop fails, well, you should have a notebook somewhere so you can still write things down if you need to. Some other criteria that you might consider include things like scalability and interoperability. So scalability has to do with the technology being equally useful for small teams and large teams or even individuals and, and these larger teams. Uh, then also small and large data sets. So you want something that is just as useful for one person working on their own as well as these large teams who are kind of working together. So if you have something that enables you to easily share your data with other people and work on data together, then that's a plus. Then for interoperability, uh, it's also good to, to choose technologies that can be easily utilized uh, with other technologies. So if the output of your camera or your audio recorder or whatever software you're using can't be used by anything else, then obviously that's that's kind of a bad idea. So it's best to try to produce outputs that can be used by as many technologies as possible. So that will make it easier for you, but it will also make it easier for anyone else who wants to use the outputs that you're creating. So community members who might want access to recordings or other researchers who might want access to your text data. Uh, also, just thinking about the outputs um, in terms of quality, you, of course, want to choose technologies that uh, produce as high quality as possible. So in language documentation, we have certain standards for audio and video quality, for example. Uh, and you also want to be uh, choosing technologies that pr produce an appropriate format. And then, of course, finally, you also want to think about the, the cost of the technology. So looking at your budget, uh, how much can you afford? What's the best technology that you can afford given the money that you have? 
And then thinking not only about the technology itself, but about who's going to be using the technology, there's some other criteria you can consider when you're making these sorts of assessments. So is the technology easy to use, not only for you, but for anyone else who might be using it? So if you have a really nice video camera, you go into the field and you're shooting video, and then you get sick, and you have to kind of lay low for a week or two, but there are other community members who could be using that camera to shoot video, but then the camera's too complex and they can't figure it out, well, then that doesn't work out very well for you. It'd be nice to have a more simple camera that some other people could use. But also uh, when it comes to audio recorders and uh, software and things like that, you want to be uh, considering ease of use. And then also, especially when you're working with teams of speakers, you want to consider the value that the technology holds for the speakers and for the community. So if uh, going back to the topic of uh, smartphones, in East Africa, smartphones are very popular. So um, even if they aren't always the most effective tool, they are highly valued. They're, it's sort of a status symbol. So if you give a smartphone to someone, then they will greatly appreciate that. And they, they will, that will kind of increase uh, the incentives that they have to contribute to the project and to participate. So that's something to consider, uh, this kind of the social value of the technology. But then also, uh, when you think about kind of the longer-term trajectory of the community, when we provide technologies that enable community members to uh, get access to um, more job opportunities, for example, then that's always a good thing. So computers are really great for that. So if you can provide training on just how to use a computer, how do you create text documents, how do you surf the web, things like that, then that is it can be a, a very powerful experience for community members and can give them access to opportunities that they otherwise would not have access to. And that is generally a good thing for the community and good for you too. So those are things you want to consider when you're also choosing the technologies that you employ in the field. And just a, a couple of things I would add to that is when you're doing assessments, you should always reassess whenever you go back to the field. So if you've used the technology before and it went well, well, that's good. But you want to think about it again before you use that same technology when you're going to the field uh, another time. So if uh, there's a newer technology that has some advantages over that technology, then you might want to consider that. Or if there's changes in terms of the, uh, the use of that technology in the field, then you want to consider that. Uh, so uh, when we're talking about mobile phones, again, the availability of mobile data in the field is, is changing rapidly around the world. So that's something that you, you have to kind of uh, update in your mind as you go. Like, okay, where is their mobile data available now in my, in my field site? Uh, so what does that mean in terms of, you know, which community members can utilize mobile phones or can uh, utilize a computer together with a mobile phone to upload data? Uh, so you, you have to kind of continually be reassessing the conditions and generally, I think it's a good idea just to experiment with different technologies. And there are a few reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that uh, there, there always will be something out there that you didn't know about that might be really useful. But also, technologies are developing rapidly, so there are always going to be new things. Every year, there are new technologies, 
And uh, we should be trying those out because uh, there might be new possibilities that we, we haven't explored yet. But also when we utilize new technologies, we then kind of support the development of technologies that are kind of catered towards our work. So uh, when you utilize software that's designed for linguistics like Elon and you support that software, then that supports its development. And then that results in the improvement of that software. So we make it easier for our discipline when we we explore these new tools and their kind of uh, their applicability the kind of work that we're doing also these days field workers have to think a lot about archiving uh, so most field workers are expected to archive they're also expected to make their research reproducible and that means making it accessible through an archive or some other repository and using things like uh, persistent identifiers and other identifiers so that uh, audio segments can be identified within kind of a longer text. And these things require different types of data processing. Uh, these, this kind of data processing that is not traditionally taught in field methods courses. So now young and upcoming field workers, uh, they have a lot of work to do actually to figure these things out on their own. And uh, that's something I've been kind of trying to share more widely is how we can s start to tackle these issues of archiving and reproducibility and uh, incorporate them into our fieldwork uh, methodologies. So you need to think about the, the end result. Uh, what does it actually mean to archive? What uh, metadata is required to archive? What are the formats that you need to archive? And then work backwards. And this kind of backward design can strongly inform your your workflow so that you know what to start with. If you start thinking, well, I'm just going to go record whatever, and uh, I'm going to uh, record certain kinds of metadata that I'm familiar with, and I'll figure out that archiving stuff later, well, you could easily run into some big problems. If you know exactly which metadata categories you need to enter into the archive, then you can collect that metadata when you're creating the, the data in the first place, and that will make your life much easier. So that's also very important when you are assessing the kind of technologies they're using, especially the software that you're using, the data formats. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. When I was working at the Endangered Languages Archive, we had some older collections come to us and the metadata was in um, the SIMD format, which at the time was not a format that we could accept. And there's no there's no kind of clean way to convert SIMD to MD, which is what we use at, at ELAR. And it was just a nightmare. It took, it took ages and it was a lot of work for the depositors and for us to try to get the deposit into, you know, good shape to be archived, even though, you know, maybe the deposit was perfectly fine, but the metadata was not in the correct or not correct, but in the a format that we could take. Right. No, yeah, that's definitely a huge issue. And I would definitely suggest for anyone who's considering uh, starting a career in linguistics fieldwork, that definitely helps to do a little bit of coding. And this is something that I picked up just quite recently uh, when I was depositing at ELAR as well. And I found that it's very helpful if you're able to convert data from one format to another. And oftentimes the software that we use enables us to do that. So if you use a certain text editor, you can usually export or save as different formats. But these kind of lesser used formats like MD and SIMD, 
we don't really have the tools for converting from those formats, uh, from one format to the other. So sometimes it's necess- necessary to do that manually. And that's one reason why I, I strongly suggest that people focus on outputs that are interoperable. So if you create an output like just a spreadsheet even, or a, a, a tab-delimited text file, uh, then it's actually very easy to convert that format to any other format. Uh, so it's something that's kind of not intuitive uh, to most people, that actually playing text is is oftentimes the, the best output, because that's the easiest to convert to a different format. Whereas something like a Word document, well, that could be really hard to convert, you know? So that's something that I think people are now starting to think more about, and uh, I think will result in uh, increased efficiency in our workflows in, in the future. Yeah. What do you use to make your metadata? Do you use Arbol or? Well, that's a good question. So because I, I'm primarily depositing at ELAR and the, the ELAR uh, depositing workflow is changing, uh, my colleague Andrew Harvey and I are working on sort of a project-specific workflow that involves uh, creating a Python script, which is really quite basic, and just takes uh, speaker metadata from a tab-delimited text file or a spreadsheet and session metadata from another tab-delimited file or spreadsheet and puts it into the MD format. So we use that based on a template that ELR provided us with uh, so we know, say, if you have, uh, you have a speaker filling as a, a certain participant role in a session, that we know how to code that in the text file and we just create a script to kind of automatically create that based on the information that we have in the spreadsheets. And if we, uh, we're hoping to create that actually in the next two weeks so that at the, at the time that we're ready to deposit our data, we can essentially take our metadata, run the script, and it will automatically create all of the MD files, and then we can deposit, which should make it much more efficient. And then, of course, it also helps to to have the metadata in a digital format to begin with, and then everything just goes a lot faster. So that's what we're working on right now, and I do hope that at some point in the future we we have some sort of tool that's specifically designed uh, for this kind of uh, depositing workflow with archives such as ELAR, so that it's, uh, it's a lot easier and, and it's uh, much more efficient than the workflows that we've had. Because it can be very time-consuming to convert uh, metadata and to also convert the primary data. So it would be good to find a workflow that enables us to easily produce those outputs based on some sort of standardized format that's easy to access, like a plain text file. Yeah, for sure. Can we talk more about digitizing fieldwork workflows for increased efficiency and accuracy? So digital data entry instead of handwritten notes? Right, yeah, so that's one of the big points. Um, If you think back... 50 years ago, what was linguistic fieldwork like? Well, it involved a lot of uh, non-digital outputs, of course. So things like handwritten fieldwork notebooks, analog recordings on like reel-to-reel tape or, or, or cassette tapes, printed photographs, uh, and other things of that nature. But also secondary outputs like publications, they weren't digital. So the means of of sharing your fieldwork data was primarily through publications. So we weren't actually sharing our primary data directly. Now today, of course, the context is very different. So we have the ability to create more or less infinite data sets, and we can share them with anyone around the world. 
and uh, the communities that we work with, they also often have access to many of the same technologies that we do. Uh, however, our fieldwork methods, they have not changed that much yet. They're starting to change, I think, but they're uh, still mostly rooted in the context of the past. So when we talk about digitizing fieldwork, we're talking about kind of a, a reassessment of the outcomes of fieldwork. So what are we actually trying to produce? Because those outputs are changing. Uh, so we're creating larger databases. We're creating data that is accessible and citable. But we're also using different technologies in the field, and uh, our methods are starting to change as a result. So this issue of finding the balance between producing larger data sets and then at the same time conducting what we call reproducible research, that is research that can be recreated or reproduced by another researcher, we actually are lucky within the, the discipline of linguistic fieldwork because we have two solutions available to us to solve uh, this kind of imbalance between the two or the kind of competing interests of those two. Uh, so we can increase the efficiency or scalability of our methods by uh, using different technologies or different uh, methods. We can also involve community members in as many aspects of fieldwork as possible. So it's kind of the crowdsourcing method. In terms of increased efficiency, as you said, one of the biggest things is just minimize digitization tasks. So even when I was studying as a PhD student in my field methods course, we were writing notes in a notebook. And there are many benefits to writing by hand in a notebook because you can draw pictures, you can color things differently, you know, you could do essentially whatever you want. However, when you create that non digital record, if you want to produce a digital output, you have to digitize it at some point. And that is going to be done manually, especially if it's handwritten. And that can take a lot of time. So if you have books and books and books that you've written in the field, it could take you weeks to digitize those uh, transcriptions and translations and other notes. So one easy solution to that is to create a method for entering your data directly into a computer or a, a mobile phone or a tablet so that the data is digital to begin with. So this means that you don't have to digitize anything. But also, you can create data that is specially designed so that you can then process it easily later. So for example, when you're creating a recording, oftentimes when I was uh, first starting as a student, I would uh, conduct elicitation sessions with the audio recorder on, and I would be asking follow-up questions, and I'd be taking notes, and maybe just kind of conversing with the speaker I was working with, and all of that was being recorded. And then after the session, I would look at my notes, and be like, okay, I took good notes, and then I'd look at my audio recording and be like, well, huh, what am I going to do with that recording? Like, I just recorded an hour and a half long conversation. Uh, what am I going to do with that? And it would just sit there and I would never do anything with it because it takes so much time to find each individual uh, production of each individual word if you want to get access to those recordings. And that largely stems out of, again, this historical context that in the past, there was a primary focus on the notebook. So the notebook was kind of the, the ultimate record. And if you wanted to check the notebook, okay, then you could refer to the recording. But nobody would regularly listen through all the recordings and then try and pull out each of the productions and make those you know accessible in a database or anything like that. So now that we have all these technologies available to us, 
we can change our, our methods to take advantage of them as, uh, as best as possible. So we have some software, including software such as Pratt, which can automatically segment audio based on uh, certain variables. So the automatic segmentation of Pratt is fairly simple, but it's uh, easy for people to use, and a lot of people are familiar with Pratt. So what you can do is you can create an elicitation session that can then be easily automatically processed by Pratt. So the way that you could do that is um, if you're listening words you've never elicited before, then you can uh, first do this sort of traditional elicitation session with the audio recorder running if you want, and you're taking notes and you're kind of uh, checking your transcriptions and talking or communicating with the speaker. But then after that, you create a recording that is specifically designed to be automatically uh, segmented by Prot. So then uh, you you create a, a list of elicited items that you plan to record, and you have the speaker produce those items in that order, and you could have them do three repetitions, for example, and uh, you do them kind of at a specific pace, and then Prot can very easily automatically segment all of the productions. And then you can you can easily align that with the text data that you've entered into the spreadsheet while you, you were conducting the first part of the elicitation session. And this is what my colleague Manuel Otero and I call the um, digital notebook method. So the digital notebook method essentially enables you to conduct an elicitation session and then within half an hour or so you have the recording together with time-aligned uh, transcriptions and translations. So the, no longer do you have to wait, you know, a week or so or until, you know, you have time in your schedule to go back through your recording and segment it manually and digitize your, your notes and then put all of that together. Uh, you can do all this automatically, but only if you set it up and, and plan ahead. So you have to be thinking about these things before you even press the record button, right? So it kind of takes some forethought. So that's one of the things I've been focusing on right now. And my colleague uh, Manuel and I were, were working on a paper for the journal Language Documentation and Conservation, uh, specifically about this digital notebook method. That's, um, I want to learn more about that. I do have, I think, one or two video recordings that you can watch as well, where I go through some of the steps of the method so that uh, anyone who's interested could go online and try it out. And there's uh, links to that on my website. Okay, and I'll put them in the show notes too and on the Field Notes website so they can find it. Okay, great. Can you talk a bit more about how community collaboration has impacted your project or improved your project? Yeah, so to give a, a bit of historical context, my colleague Andrew Harvey and I, we both received fellowships from the Firebird Foundation uh, last summer, actually, to train members of the Gorwa and Asamjay Datoga communities to collect recordings. And these fellowships, they strongly influence the development of our approach to community collaboration. So the Firebird Foundation has a strong emphasis on the training of indigenous communities to collect their oral traditions, or collect recordings of their oral traditions. And so that emphasis has kind of influenced our entire approach to fieldwork. So now, rather than going in as sort of the, the lone wolf linguist, we're going in as sort of project managers or, or facilitators. So we, we uh, go in and we start with a training session. Uh, we invite members of the community who are interested and, and have the kind of appropriate background or experience 
to to be trained in language documentation. And uh, this sort of the training, it, it builds capacity within the community. So as we were saying earlier, uh, community members who have training in use of audiovisual equipment and then also computers, uh, they have uh, increased prospects uh, for job opportunities. So whenever possible, when we do these trainings, we try to think not only about uh, our project goals, but also community goals. So how can this training uh, help the community in other ways? Uh, community training also changes uh, changes the relationship between the field worker and the community. So when the community collects their own data, then they're better able to achieve their own goals for language maintenance. So that will strengthen the value of the project to the community. And this is really important because it creates this sort of feedback loop where community members have an incentive to contribute to the project because they get some sort of value out of it. And then that brings more and more people in, and then you get a lot of community buy-in. But also, again, getting back to the crowdsourcing method. So you want to to involve as many community members as possible. So if you provide the proper training, a community member can do essentially anything that a linguist can do. So a community member can collect data. A, A community member can collect metadata. They can transcribe. They can translate. They can prepare data for archiving. Uh, they can do pretty much anything. And also, I would say that this this not only contributes to kind of the efficiency of your project, but it works towards the decolonization of linguistics. Because traditionally, linguistics has prioritized the needs of the academic community over those of the, the speech community. And in this way, you empower members of the community to kind of make their own decisions and to kind of guide the documentation project as it goes on. Um, Andrew, he's gone uh, another step, and he has uh, he has worked with the Gorwa to establish an advisory committee that meets every month, and that advisory committee monitors the uh, the progress of the uh, data collection that, that is being conducted by Gorwa community members, and this is a really effective way of increasing community engagement, and it also involves members of the community who might want to be involved in the project in some way, but they might not have the background that enables them to contribute through data collection. So especially like uh, elders in the community who are not very tech savvy, they can contribute to a language documentation or maintenance project by joining a committee of some kind and then helping to uh, kind of uh, offer guidance on data collection. It's also really important for the community to establish some long-term goals for language uh, maintenance and language development. So if, uh, if you're working with a community that has no orthography, for example, what you know, goals do they have for uh, orthographic development? Do they have any goals for creating printed materials? Do they have other goals for like some sort of online presence? Do they want to create a cultural center of some kind? Uh, but also speaking kind of more abstractly, do they have goals in terms of uh, language vitality? So if children are not speaking the language, do they have a goal uh, you know, at some point in the future of uh, all the children in their community starting to speak that language? Or any, you know, anything of that sort of nature that involves community leadership and kind of setting objectives for the community to kind of uh, organize together or specifically around this issue of language endangerment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Richard. This was really great, really interesting. 
Um, we didn't have a chance to go over your equipment, but I'll link all the models you sent me in the show notes. So if people are interested in what kind of equipment you use, they can find um, find all that. Where can people find you online and read more about your work if they're interested? Uh, yeah, well, I have a website. It's richardtgriscom.wordpress.com. And you can find uh, some of my publications as well as uh, presentations there. Um, and then also on the uh, Rift Valley Network website, which is riftvalleynetwork.weebly.com. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.